Well, it's uh, great to be with you all this morning, and I I'm, I'm, uh, hope that this Christmas season has not been too uh, stressful. It's a very difficult time of year, I think, for a lot of people, and sad, sadly, because it's supposed to be a, a joyous time, a time of peace and love. You know, as we uh, finish this series today on the songs that are found in the, in the scriptures, uh, these uh, these canticles that uh, are being sung by various people concerning the coming of the great king. Um, it reminded me of, of the fact that people f- from the time of the earliest dawn of history, f- far back as you can go, recorded history and probably beyond that when uh, men and, and women first began to, to ponder, to consider uh, whether or not uh, there was a God. Uh, uh, and, and that's never stopped, by the way, until today. People still wonder, you know, is there a God? And what if, what is he, she, it, what is the God like? Uh, what, uh, uh, what is the nature of this God? Uh, is it a God uh, of, of multiples? Uh, are there many? Is there just one? Uh, is he all-powerful, he or she or it, all-powerful? Uh, what exactly is God? Um, and is God good? Is He good or bad? Or is He some mixture of both, good and bad? And finally, I think it comes down to the question, if He's good, uh, does He love, does He have any kind of feelings or passion or compassion towards us? And if we're honest, I think we would actually, in our, our dark and quiet and private time, wonder does he really even love me? Maybe he loves, but does he love uh, me? Is there a personal relation, uh, connection between God and myself? Uh, I think that these songs answer that, and particularly the song we're going to look at this morning, the, what is called the, the, the Nuke Dimitus uh, that uh, uh, Simeon sings. And so if you have your scriptures with you today, you can open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. We'll be reading uh, from the 22nd to the 35th verse. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a a printed uh, copy of that particular verse in your bulletin. And so you can use that as well. And so now hear, uh, hear God's word. When the time came for their purification, talking about uh, Mary and Joseph and the child Jesus... When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens, first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or or two young pigeons." Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. 
that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to talk about three things this morning, and I hope it will kind of bring this Christmas together for you. It certainly has for me. We're going to talk about a sacrifice, secondly, a song, and thirdly, a sword and a sign. So we'll look at a sacrifice, a song, a sword, and a sign. Uh, The sacrifice we find here in verses 22 through 24 There are several things that happen here when they take Jesus up to the temple. Uh, He was born in Bethlehem, and on the eighth day, presumably, there in Bethlehem, he was circumcised, as was the the custom and the law at the time, uh, that the child be circumcised on the eighth day, and they probably would have done that there locally, either in their home uh, or perhaps in the synagogue, whatever the tradition was at the time. 32 days later, they would have taken the child because they were only six or seven miles from Jerusalem. They would have taken Jesus up to the temple to do for him and for his family what was necessary uh, according to the law. And these involved several things. One was a purification rite. One was a presentation uh, that had to do with redeeming the child's life. So the purification was done because Mary had had a child, and according to uh, Hebrew law, not just Hebrew law, but many of the cultures in the ancient Near East saw uh, an issue of blood, uh, whether it was uh, normal, natural, monthly issues of blood from women, or if it was by the birth of a child, but an issue of blood as something that made not only the woman unclean, but made the father unclean because he was in the household and, you know, they're touching each other in the house and food and utensils, but also the baby was unclean. So this purification rite was necessary, and what it required is you find it in Leviticus chapter 12, and you can go read, it's very interesting, and uh, uh, they would take uh, and bring a lamb. The lamb was for a burnt offering. And the uh, bird, a turtle dove or a pigeon, was for uh, the sin offering. So this was not a peace offering, although on these occasions, according to commentators, and even today it's a very festive occasion, this was a reminder, because of the issue of blood, because of the issue of birth, if you remember back to Genesis, uh, God told uh, Eve, you're going to have pain in childbirth. It's not just the physical pain He's talking about. It's that, that... Life is going to be painful now. All of life is going to be painful because of what you did, Adam and Eve. What you did is causing life to be painful and life and blood were seen as equal. And so an issue of blood uh, from, from the birth of a child was seen as a reminder of the painfulness, the fallenness of mankind. And it was a symbolic of that to impress 
on the minds of people that not only is there joy in the birth of a child, but there's also the pain that goes along with it, knowing that the child is born into this fallen uh, world. And so they would have to come to do the purification rite with a lamb and a bird. Now, the law was very kind because it understood that many people could not afford a lamb. And so it said, if you can't afford a lamb, you come with two birds, one for the burnt offering, one for the sin offering. And that is, in fact, what Mary and Joseph brought. These were poor people. They were humble people of humble means. Uh, And so they brought these sacrifices to the temple to be offered on behalf, listen carefully, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. Now some of you are thinking, and you should be, uh, what does Jesus need to be purified from? Yeah, He's the Son of God. He has no sin, right? Right? Right. No, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. Haven't you all learned yet? No, He had no sin in Himself. But He was born like you and me, folks. He came into this world in the same bloody way. Into the same fallen world. To fallen parents. To a fallen temple. To a fallen religion. To a fallen cosmos. And from the moment, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, from the moment He was circumcised, His life was nothing but pain. The pain of childbirth was upon this child and purification had to be made. Not for him, but for everybody that he touched. Then he had to be presented. This was the next part. The presentation was to redeem his life. In other words, Jesus, as it says in Galatians, he was born under the law. He was born under its Uh, subscriptions, all that was necessary of the law, Jesus was born under that. And so it was necessary for him to be redeemed. You see, he was born into the tribe of Judah. And so therefore, his life and the life of every firstborn child, in fact, the law went so far as to say the life of every firstborn creature, every animal firstborn was offered to the Lord. And if it was an unclean animal, like a donkey, that could not be offered on the altar to God, then they were to break its neck. Death was required, even if it was an unclean animal. They didn't want to break its neck. If the farmer says, hey, I need the donkey, then you can buy the donkey. Five shekels, you can pay. And for that five shekels, which was no little measly sum, it was... You know, an amount that would be nothing, it'd be pocket change to us, but in those days it was a significant amount of money. They could redeem the animal. Go to the temple, pay, redeem the animal. But people had to redeem their firstborn children as well. Because if you remember from Exodus, and you remember Charlton Heston and those guys? All right, so they put the blood on the doorpost, you know, to protect them during Passover because the angel of death was passing through the land and every firstborn died. Every child, firstborn. Every animal, firstborn. Male and female, made no difference. Firstborn, it died. And so therefore, this ritual of redemption, presentation and redemption, was that they would bring the child to the temple and they would redeem the child 
if, since it was not a Levite child, it was a Judaic child, a, a child from the tribe of Judah, it was not going to serve in the temple. Its life had to be purchased back from God at the cost of five shekels. And so there you have this purification rite. All of this was wrapped up in one ceremony, very festive. Everybody's happy that it was happening. It was a cause of joy and, and all of that. It wasn't as dour as I made it out to sound. Uh, it was actually part of their ceremony and something that they rejoiced in, that we can go and do these sacrifices and redeem our firstborn. You see, folks, Jesus... Even though you now, all of us in this room, we understand who he was. We know that he was sinless, that he was born of a virgin, that his, that his life was that he was the son of God, not the son of sinful man, and that his life was perfect and that he would in fact live a perfect life. See, we know all that and we're pouring all that back into this. But Simeon wasn't. Neither was Mary, neither was Joseph, neither were the shepherds, neither were the wise men. Nobody was pouring all of that later theology back into this. All they saw was a helpless, humble baby born in poor circumstances. And somehow they knew that that child would do for them at their level of life, bloody, sinful, poor, humble, that that child was somehow going to be born into that world. And would in some way raise them up and rescue them. That was the promise going all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God told the serpent that one of the seed of the woman will come and crush your head. From then till now, the righteous, the devout people like Simeon were remembering those things and many, many more throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to talk about all of them that someone would come, a real person, that they wouldn't be rescued by a spacecraft in outer space, you know. They wouldn't beam me up, Scotty, and get me out of here. Like modern contemporary Christianity seems to think, some rapture is going to come, just take everybody away, and we're all going to be safe and sound. That isn't how these people thought. They knew that they were under the thumb of Rome. They knew they were under the curse of sin. And they were longing for it in a way that I don't know, frankly, if we actually do. Unless, unless you're able to look beneath the surface of your life honestly and see your heart for what it really is. I have to do that every day and I hope you do as well. And know that if it were not for the grace of God, we would be who knows where and doing who knows what. But somehow he has come into time and space as a child, as maybe one of us with all of the weaknesses to do this. Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, the one we sang about a moment ago in that beautiful hymn, these people recognized their spiritual poverty. They were, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit. That's what it means. It means to recognize your spiritual poverty. It means to be able to look in the mirror. You're shaving in the morning, or maybe not. Uh, if you've got a, a beard going on for winter time, maybe you're not shaving. But you're in the mirror, and you're looking at yourself, and you are honest for just one second, and you say, you know, I know that if I died right now, if something happened to me and I died, and I had to stand before God at His judgment throne, what would I have to hold in my hands out to say, here is what I have to offer so that you will let me in? Here's what I have. 
And some of you that have been here at Christ the King know for ages we've been talking about this forever. It is the gospel, folks, that when you come to that day and time, when it's just you and God and there's nothing else and nobody else, what are you going to say to him? Here's what I have to offer you. My good doing, my good moral living, I was better than the next one, I tried harder, I was really sincere. I mean, what? come on, what are you going to hand him? Or are you going to put your hand on your mouth and say, I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer you. I am a, if you decide, if you in your grace and mercy decide to save me, then I want it to be on the basis of what this man did. By the way, here's my lawyer. Yeah, you come with nothing but Him. You come with the One who was born in a bloody world, in humble, meek estates, in a manger, to a young woman, a, probably a, a young teenage woman, and a man who was just a, a common laborer, a worker. We think he had some big furniture store, you know, downtown, where he made furniture and had, you know, slews of of workers and factory and all that. He was a poor man, a carpenter. Whether Carpenter actually could mean just a common laborer. The word is not specific to carpentry. It is a word for the people that just did meager labor, everyday labor. And that's who our king is. He comes to make a sacrifice. He comes to purify and to redeem. And folks... Think about this. In every part of your Bible, you know, I don't have mine up here. Shame on me. I've got this little piece of paper. But my, I have a big Bible. I have one that's bigger than all of yours. <laughs> Mine's really big because I have the official one. Kidding. I have a big Bible. My Bible's very thick. Got lots of stuff in it. Lots of words. And I have to tell you that those words all point me to this man. They point me to this place. They point me to what he does. Purification. Presenting himself. Redeeming. And on every word, every page of that Bible of mine, and yours by the way, unclean things always make the thing they touch unclean. Always. All unclean things, when they touch something else, it makes them unclean. There's this, there's this law of contamination that is never broken in all of Scripture. Unclean things touch clean things and they become unclean. And there's no way to reverse it unless a sacrifice is made, unless purification is made, unless redemption is made. And all of a sudden, you have this child, this baby, this man. He grew up to be a man. And when he touches something that's unclean, it's not him that becomes unclean. It's them that becomes clean. Everything gets reversed. He touches lepers. They become clean. He should have been unclean when he touched the leper. He goes around. He touches dead bodies. He tells them, roll the stone away. They roll the stone away. Lazarus comes out. Everybody's touching Lazarus. Lazarus, they're not getting unclean. They're getting clean. Lazarus is alive. Everything is reversed. People are losing their minds. They're going, what's going on? What's going on? Because now, for the first time in all those pages of that big, thick book, now somebody is able to take the unclean, the impure, the irredeemable, something that you can't fix, and simply by His presence, He fixes it. 
How? By magic? By some supernatural thing? I don't even know how to say this. But when he touches a leper, he took it. When he touches the widow of Nain's son, they're carrying him out on a bier to go bury him, and he reaches up and touches that dead child, and the child comes back to life. The death of that child became his death. The disease becomes his disease. The impurity becomes his impurity. And so on the cross, it's no wonder, on the cross, John Calvin said, Jesus descended into hell. On the cross, He descended into the grave, into the place of the dead, while He was hanging on the cross, while He was suffering the agonies of mankind's sin, ours and everyone else's. A sacrifice. What about the song? Let's look at it quickly. The song is one of tension. It's beautiful. It's probably of all of the songs, it may be the, actually the best one of all of them. But the song is about tension. Tension of faith and tension of salvation. Let me see if I can do this quickly. Verse 26, look at it. It says, He was revealed by the Holy Spirit that He would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now notice this. This is extremely important, folks. Pay very close attention. Notice that that the author, Luke, does not put death versus life. He would not see death until he had seen life. No, he says he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. He's taking, he's making a juxtaposition, something that every one of us, if you're just reading and looking at it for what it says, saying, wow, this is, this is different. He's not just putting life over against death. He's putting death and life. He's not doing that. He's putting death over against a person. A person who claims to be the life. Now, the, the ramifications of this are almost too much to, to exhaust this morning, but let, let me just give it to you this way and see if it'll help, and then I'm happy to talk to you about it privately if you want uh, at some other time. But if that's true, if it's not death versus life, but death versus a person who is the life, do you realize that no matter what happens in your life, you're still okay? You see, life can go up and down and sideways and you can have horrific suffering, you can have disease, you can lose things, lose people, lose children, lose marriages, lose jobs. You can lose the things that we think, listen, that we think give us life. Relationships, money, place, Status, reputation. You could lose those which we think give us life and we would really have lost something. But if it's not that, if it's a person in whom holds, who is life and holds all of life, do you realize, folks, that nothing can ever be taken away from you? 
They could strip you down to your naked body, nothing but skin and bones, and you are still better off than the person living in a palace. You realize that. Do we really believe that? You see, in America, it's so hard because we're already fat and happy. But if you just watched, if you're a four-year-old Syrian child and you just watched your parents get murdered and you're laying there, what, what hope do you have? Or if you're a Syrian parent and you just watched your children get buried in a building of rubble, what, what's left of life? Really? And that's why it's hard to preach the gospel in America and why the church, I think, for whatever it's worth, folks, we are in big trouble in this country. We have been so well-fed for so long, we don't really understand the glory and the beauty of being rescued in the gospel. We don't get the idea that tension is the way most people in the whole world live. They live in true tension. It was revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Not life, not things that we think make up life, but a person. A person who is the life. Johann Bengel, this is an old-time commentator. Uh, you just have a hard time finding his commentaries. But he said that this, this whole thing, listen, of Jesus and life, the life, over against uh, death is what he called a sweet antithesis. An antithesis is the opposite, fancy word for saying it's the extreme opposites. A sweet antithesis. And here's what he said, listen, how, how would the sight of one, the one sight, he's talking about, how would the one sight, the sight of Jesus, the child, how would the one sight of the child Jesus gild, listen, gild the gloom of the other, of death? You see, somehow in this man, this righteous man of faith who was believing and waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the Messiah, how was he able in his heart and mind to look at a baby 40 days old being cradled in its mother's arms and see life? Actually see it. And you know, I'm hoping, folks, that most of you at some point in your life, you have seen him. You have actually seen life. And you've taken Him into your life, into your heart, into your life. That You've believed and put your trust and faith in Him and He becomes your life. I'm hoping that that day actually happened to some of you. I don't know. And listen, He doesn't want you to clean up your mess first and then come. Because good luck with that. Good luck with cleaning the mess up and then coming. He wants you to bring all your mess, everything you got, bring it all and come to Him, the bloody mess. Bring it and say, here it is. And you know what He'll do? He'll rejoice and say, yeah, give it to me. I'm the life. I'm the one that can actually take the unclean, the impure, the irredeemable, and just by my very presence, I can take all that away. Why? Because I'm going to go to the cross for you. I'm going to stretch out and be murdered, tortured to death for you. I'm going to pour out my blood. My life's blood is going to go out of me for you. And man, when you do that, something really amazing happens. To live, folks, listen, to live as a Christian 
is to embrace Christ, not life. It is to embrace Christ, not life. Because life as we know it is very shallow. He is the life. Embrace Him and everything else takes on a completely new flavor. It looks different, it feels different, it appears different, and it allows us to truly be different in the world, truly be salt and light, instead of just another group of people who are whining and complaining about their rights. Which only people in America can do, by the way. Everywhere else you whine and complain about your rights, they just shoot you. Especially if you're a Christian now, especially if you're a Christian. We've got to get real with the life. If we live, we live to the Lord, the Apostle said. Look, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Pure genius. The Apostle Paul. He takes the extremes of human existence from birth to death. He says, life or death. The whole and everything in between. If we belong to Him, we live. We have nothing. Why do you think the Bible is able to say hundreds of 325 times? Do not fear. Yes, we doubt. I have lots of doubts and I'm sure you do as well. Never says, don't doubt. He asks sometimes, why? Why are you doubting? You know, storm, no storm, why are you doubting? Yeah, I know, I understand that. But he never says, don't do it. But he does tell you, do not fear. Why? Because whether you live or you die, you're the Lord's. You see, it allows us, folks, as Christians, to face anything and everything that may come whether it's suffering or, or even joy and abundance and the stock market going to 20000 no matter what it is. Even in that, we can rejoice. But if it goes to 10000 we don't have to die or jump out of windows. Right? 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 I don't know, everybody's being kind of quiet. Maybe you are going to jump out of a window. <laughs> Make sure it's a first-story window. I don't know. What about the tension of salvation? The tension of faith, the tension of salvation. This is in verses 29. He talks about, let me give them to you quickly. Verse 29, the salvation, the tension of salvation. Salvation by a sovereign master. It's very interesting. I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that the ESV and some of the other translations translate the word despota as Lord. Although they're synonymous, in, in the Greek, it doesn't say kurios, which is Lord, the usual word for Lord. Uh, now release your servant, it says despota, a very rare word, a very unusual word. It's the word that uh, uh, it, it actually should be translated master or sovereign master or sovereign lord. It's more than a kurios, in other words. It's more than just sir or gentleman, or if you will, because that was another use of kurios. It is master, one who owns the other. We are saved, folks, by a sovereign master. What that means is that if you're saved, who do you have to thank for it? Who? Him only. You can't say that you cooperated with Him, that you gave your assistance to Him, or that you gave your assent to Him to save you, or you asked Him and invited Him into your heart to save you, or whatever, or that you accepted Jesus, accepted Him as what? I don't know. Some of the language that we've all grown up with and been taught is absolutely insane. 
If you are saved, you're saved for one reason and one reason only, and that's because He saved you. Amen? Come on, all the Calvinists, get excited now. We're talking about it. A sovereign master, the one who holds all the power of life and death. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe in the doctrine of election because God, if God had not elected me, I never would have. If He hadn't chosen me, I never would have chosen Him. And if He hadn't have chosen me before the foundation of the world, He never would have chosen me afterwards. And if He hasn't chosen me for reasons unknown to me, I never could find a reason in myself why He should have applied to me His special love. That's election. That's predestination. That's God choosing. That's God being despotic. The master of the universe. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. Who for reasons only known to Himself reaches down into this poor, sick, bloody, messed up world and reaches down and rescues people. And we have the nerve and we have the gall to then turn around and say, well, how come you did it? And make up all our excuses. Crazy. Instead of clicking our heels and rejoicing in our salvation and running out and trying to get others to come to Jesus. Do you see that? Simeon saw it. You are the master. And salvation, not only by a a sovereign master, but by another. Look at what he says in verse 30. My eyes have seen your salvation. You see, it's not our salvation. We don't do something to get saved. We come to Him and He gives us His salvation. Another commentator said this, Many saw the full-grown man, Christ Jesus, who never saw him as God's salvation. Lots of people saw him, folks, with their eyes, but they never saw him as their salvation. They could never get over their self-salvation, their self-justification. Well, I do this, and I do that, and I do the other thing. No, no, no. He does this, and he does that, and he does the other thing. How about salvation for all kinds of people? You know, it's so sad that even in the 21st century, we're still dividing by race, by socioeconomics, by how we dress, by how we cut our hair, by how many tattoos we have or don't have, by where the earrings are. You know, all of these things. We divide over everything, whether or not you like peanut butter, whether or not you go to Starbucks, well, whether or not you go to Kinley House. Their coffee's better, by the way. Whether or not, you know, wherever you go for, you know, we, we divide over everything. And here he says it's salvation for all kinds of people, not just Jews, not just the good people, but for all kinds, for Gentiles even like us. And finally, salvation by a sign that will be opposed. This is pretty amazing. How did it? Simeon could not have possibly have, have known or understood what was going to happen to Jesus, but somehow he knew that Jesus stepping onto the scene and saying what he would say, what it was really going to take to get into the kingdom of God was going to be opposed. And sure enough, if the cross doesn't offend you folks, nothing will. Because it goes down to the very heart of our idolatry. It goes down inside and it says, you know, no matter how good you really think you are, There's always some motive underneath all that that is self-serving. So what does the sweet antithesis look like? Let me finish with this. It looks like a sword and it looks like a sign. The parents marveled at what he said. And rightly so. I mean, 
I would be marveling too. What is he talking about? This child's barely a month old. What could he possibly be talking about? And he explains it. And I don't think even Simeon knew everything he was saying, but he knew enough of his Old Testament to be able to tell what kind of salvation it was being. He said, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many and for a sign that will be opposed. That's in verse 34. What he's saying is that the message of the cross, the real gospel message, is going to divide. It's going to divide even your own heart. Forget about dividing families and, you know, mothers and fathers and Kids, they don't talk anymore because one's Christian, one's not. That's understandable. But even in your own heart and life, if you will let it, the Word of God is like a sword, a two-edged sword that will go down and divide even your soul. If you have the courage to ask the Lord, please, Lord, I'm, I know that they're saying, search me, know me. See if there's any wickedness. When David was praying that prayer, he was asking for God to do surgery on him, to open him up so that he could see his true self. He wasn't challenging God to find something bad in him or something good in him. He was saying, open me up, let me see myself. Pull the curtain back so I can see my true self. Then he tells in a parenthetical statement, he tells Mary... A sword will pierce your own soul. You see, she was his mother. She treasured, she stored, she contemplated. She believed. Look at the history of Mary just from what we read in the Bible. Don't we have to go outside the Bible into church tradition? Just the Bible. Mary at times contemplated, treasured, stored up, believed, doubted, wondered, was brokenhearted. You see, her experience, folks, one who knew him better than any other human being. Her experience mirrors our very own. And listen to this. The last place we find this beautiful, holy woman, the mother of God, Theotokos, the last place we read about her in the Bible, guess where she is? She's sitting in an upper room with all the other believers waiting for her Savior. Just like you and me today, waiting, waiting for our Savior to come. And then he says, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The the most, probably the most provocative question in all of the Bible And the first question in the Bible is a hiss. In Hebrew, it's actually a hiss. That's the way it sounds phonetically. Yay. It's translated yay, but it's actually hiss. Did God say? First question. But the most important question is this one. Who do you say? I am. That's what Jesus said. Who do you say I am? The world's going to tell you a lot of things about Jesus, but I'll tell you who he is. He lost his life that we might gain not life, but him who is the life. He was plunged into darkness, not so that we would have light, but so we would have him 
who is the light of the world. He veiled his glory in humiliation, weakness of flesh, endured torture, cruel death on a cross, all those things, unspeakable, the unspeakable darkness of the grave, something that we have never experienced nor ever will, those who trust in him, that we might actually have true glory the glory that we try to squeeze and wrench out of everything around us and it never satisfied. Get a new car, it smells great for about two weeks and then after a while, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with the car payment, right? It's not that great. And that's the way everything is in our life, folks. We think it will give us life. We think it will give us glory. We think it will bring us light. And then it disappoints. And I'm telling you on this last Sunday of Advent, that the one who will never let you down is the one who gave all for you. And he only asks this, put your trust in me. Who do you say that I am? Will you trust me? Will you? I pray you will. Father, help us. Save us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, according to your grace. Even in this country that is flowing with milk and honey and we are all doing so well, we can't even imagine what it must be like for people in most of the rest of the world. But I pray, Father, that at this Christmas season, this last Sunday of Advent, that you will break through all of that abundance and richness and let us see the true life so that we can, in fact, enjoy, for the first time perhaps, the many, many true blessings you have given us. That we can really appreciate being able to be with family and friends this holiday season that we can truly enjoy gathering around a table and feasting and breaking bread together, that we can truly, perhaps for the first time, enjoy the great privilege of being able to gather to worship you without fear, giving up just a, a few hours of our week so that we can be with you and your people in your presence. Father, I pray that as we enter a new year, that all of these things would become real to us because of him who is the way, the truth, and the life. Will you do it for us, Father, please? Make the people of Christ the King, people that are awake and who see the infant, the glory of God. Please, we ask that in his most holy name. Amen.